Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right, everybody, welcome to this episode of The Compliance Guy. I'm Sean Weiss, and as always, I want to begin by saying thank you all so much for tuning in and logging on and just hanging out with me and my special guests for a little while as we get to talk about all things healthcare. Today, I'm joined by one of my favorite people, Jordan Johnson of Onco Spark. Uh, as many of you know, Jordan and I get an opportunity to do another podcast with um, a third member, uh, Eric Rubenstein. For those of you that are not hooked on that show yet. It's called Coffee Compliance and Chuckleheads Coffee After Dark. It's a program that we do twice a month, uh, usually after five o'clock in the evening, hence the term Compliance After Dark. And yes, it is good to the very last drop. <clears throat> I hope I don't get sued for copyright infringement or something like that. Wasn't that an old Maxwell House uh, Max, saying? That's right. That's it. Maxwell House, baby. Good till the very last drop. That's it. That's it. So, you know, I spend so much time on my podcast, obviously, talking about regulatory compliance, health law, the intersection to business of medicine. But I don't think a lot of folks realize that, you know, my real background before I became AKA the compliance guy, um, you know, I was a a hospital administrator. I was a practice administrator and I really cut my teeth after I, you know, learned coding and billing and documentation. I really cut my teeth in operations and uh, practice management services. And as I've continued to watch what's transpired in our industry, um, sure, I've been looking at it now for the last, you know, two plus decades, almost three decades, but really, over the last decade, and I think we'll start there because I think, you know, this, the system's been broken for a long time, even prior to Barack Obama becoming president. But I think ACA, the Affordable Care Act, is something that really began the downward spiral in so many senses for the healthcare industry. And I think people were just so enamored with you know, Barack Obama, as I was, I voted for the guy the first time. Um, and there was such a desire to get healthcare reform in place that people said, look, let's just pass it and then we'll read it. And that's exactly what happened. There was so much pork barreling in that. There was so much garbage in it. And there were so many lies that were told to the American people, like, you'll get to keep your primary care physician. No, you didn't. <laughs> People's jobs were lost. The advent or the major push into electronic medical records, which in a 2017 interview with Barack Obama, 
He said, one of my biggest regrets about pushing healthcare in the direction that I did was forcing people onto electronic health records because it was such a slow trudge. And I didn't realize how far behind technology-wise the medical field was and how unwilling or incapable or whatever term you want to use providers were to adopt these electronic health records. But the fact is, and I think he finally admitted to it, EMRs coming into the healthcare arena forever changed the physician-patient relationship. It was no longer about being face-to-face and communicating and understanding what was going on with the patient. It was now, I'm sitting with my back to the patient, and I'm typing on a keyboard. And I'm more concerned about point and click than I am with really understanding why is my patient here today? And there's a lot of other reasons that are tied into it about insurance regulations and the games that they play for requiring this number of elements of an HPI or ROS or PFSH or examination and how do you calculate medical decision-making and then nobody really understanding what does medical necessity mean until we got court decisions, right? The Kaminsky case in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals and, you know, some of the other big cases, right? That, in you know, people were finally able to start to level the playing field, but it's now imbalanced again. And I want to talk with you, Jordan, because you're really on the front lines. You're on the cutting edge of technology and you're really a disruptor and I don't get, I don't, I don't ever compliment you on chuckleheads because it's just a show about abusing Jordan. Um, (laughs) But I want to, I want to, I want to really dare to say, you know, you and your team are really pioneers in the data analytics space. So I want to pause and I want to give you an opportunity to talk about what it is that y'all are working on because you got so many irons in the fire right now from an analytics standpoint. And I want people to understand that we're not talking about data analytics from a risk mitigation standpoint. We're talking about operational analytics and there is a inherent difference between those. So Jordan, let me mute myself for a few minutes, which is always a hard thing to do. And let me, let me give you the floor to kind of talk about what it is and why you're doing these things. No, absolutely. And I, as always, uh, good to be on here with you and good to good to have everybody on here. But I think we are at that crossroads, like you said, that was that was very, very predictable. Um, It wasn't something that, you know, snuck up on us overnight. And, and here we are to what you said as a crossroads between operations and finance to where there are major disconnects. Everything's still siloed. And to your point, we've got more barriers. How in the world can we have the level of technology that we have today and be exponentially less efficient, less accurate than we've ever been and more disconnected from our patients? And that is exactly where we are. Um, and it really stems from, and we'll get into this a little bit, is, is where we placed the patient the provider and the business in between it. 
And I think that's the issue. Now, what exposes that and lets us navigate this is what I like to call relational data. And this is not complex. There's so much focus right now on advanced um, AI, advanced machine learning. And, and we laugh because there's a reason all of these platforms, the EHR, Cerner, McKesson, Epic, uh, Meditech, whatever it is, there's a reason they still export to CSV and Excel. But in its most basic form, we can't get simplistic relational data. I can't tell you how many practices, how many hospitals are still running paper reports, still using highlighters, trying to cross um, make five or six elements from this report and relate it to that. And so what we've looked at is how do we start to bridge the gap between financial data, operational data in a close to real time format to where clinical decisions can be made that'll influence those. And that's really been our focus. And in the midst of that, to Sean's point, is how do you remain compliant? How do you know the rules? Because they're always going to be changing the directions. And there's financial incentive, and, and we can all agree to this. As Sean mentioned, ACA, um, had they done their homework, they would have realized exactly we're so far behind, but we're so far behind by design and agenda. It's not because we couldn't be. Um, standardized. There is no reason that there shouldn't be a standard data transfer format. And there's not because every vendor needs their own and call it proprietary. And if you want to tap into it, we're going to charge you $60,000 to access it through an API or something like that. So it's funny because we say That's the right. patient's data is the patient's data, but it's the facility or the provider that's paying those dues and fees to make it the patient data. So a lot of these organizations and people have held it hostage. So well, let thought? me ask you a question real quick, because yeah, let me, let me ask you this question real quick, because we get a lot of folks listening to the podcast, obviously they're coders, they're RCM specialists. Can you simply define relational data? Sure. Put it into, put it into lay terms. The most the most simple um, definition of, of relational data is taking a data point from one source, a data point from another source. And in these instances, we'll call them files, file one, file two. They may be in a different format. They may be in a different column and row setup. They may be whatever it is. And taking those two data points and then structuring them in a way that if you manipulate one, you can see the impact on the other and vice versa, forward and backwards. That's the basic definition of relational data. Let, let me, and, and that's such a great, that's such a great straightforward explanation of it. Um, let, let me ask you this question, Jordan, because you were a hospital administrator as well. And, you know, for me, there was always a struggle, right? Because, you're part of an organization, you're part of a corporation where, you know, profitability, right, is is the key to, you know, the organization um, being able to achieve a lot of things, right? Bringing in new technologies, bringing on additional providers, adding ancillary services into the mix, all of those different things, right? But at what cost? Are we looking at profit and ignoring patient care? And 
I'll give you an example. I'll tie it. I'll tie it back to an insurance company because, you know, as as much as people want to point the finger at hospitals and hospital administrators for, you know, inflated charges, and there's no doubt, hospital charges are extremely inflated, and we'll get to talking about the transparency rule in a couple of minutes. But let's talk about insurance companies, right? Because the real problem starts, in my opinion, at the insurance company. Because the highest paid CEOs work for who? The the payers, the insurance companies. The top seven. In the last 10 years, we have, yeah, we we have seen. We have that issue, right? That's the issue. These guys are record profits. How in COVID, the most constrained time you've ever seen in healthcare, yet they had their largest quarters during COVID. I mean, and we're not just talking millions. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars in profits during 2021 while we were in the thick of a pandemic. So when I hear People from insurance companies crying, oh, my gosh, we lost so much money. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Because your filings with the SEC state otherwise. And you're not going to falsify, unless you're a, a dingbat, you're going to falsify your your um, quarterly statements to the SEC. N- not going to happen. But he- here's the thing, Jordan. A- again, thinking about from the perspective of a practice administrator as a hospital administrator, what are the things from an operational data perspective that they need to be focusing on right now? And what are some of the things that are available to them that would assist in making their operations more streamlined, increasing the satisfaction of not only the staff working for them, and we could talk about things like prior off, which is one of the biggest nightmares of all, but also balancing that with patient satisfaction. No, and I think that's huge. And some of the things that are available, the biggest thing that comes to mind is a hospital administrator. So when I was in that space and you start to realize really quickly is how much we do on a day to day basis that has no billable CPT code, yet all of these productivity models, everything we do is based on some level of a CPT code, right? And the issue is tons of things. Like you mentioned prior auth, there's no special prior auth code for the 10 hours you spend on hold to get a prior, or to get a prior authorization. There are so many things. So right. when we start talking about what tools are available, really it becomes workflow management tools that can expose where are these bottlenecks? How can we stop the redundancy as a hospital administrator? We saw a lot of that uh, data input at patient registration, and then they go see another doctor down the hallway and the patient's filling out the same information. The office staff is reentering that information. Um, We look at those redundant tasks. Those are things that through through software, through programs um, can be used to minimize that. Now, On the flip side, you also want something that can measure um, and constantly keep a pulse on where you are in those processes to where when there is an issue that falls outside of the norm or where your baseline is, you know what's going on. So you're not waiting six months. I mean, denials, we use this, you know, claim denials, claim denials have 
have always been a problem. The issue in a hospital is the department, it goes to a central billing office somewhere that's probably not even in the hospital. Um, and the, the, the department itself, maybe the physician hears about it months and months and months later. Um, why right. do we have that gap? If that's where a lot of these models that CMS and CMMI put out, um, that's why they failed is the ability to give practices and hospitals close to real-time data is key to make decisions. When the OCM first came out for oncology, the data wait was 12 to 15 months. That I mean, that's that's horrible. You can't do anything. You're not going to be successful in any model if your first data feedback is 12 to 15 months later um, to make adjustments. So there's a lot of simple tools out there um, that are available that can help, again, stop the redundant task and then also track how much time is being spent on non-billable tasks. And I think that's where the big disconnect is. And that's how a lot of, you know, vendors continue to charge more and more and more. Yet we're doing that work. And this has my, been my frustration to Sean's point in the beginning um, when he talked about the EHRs and EMRs is how much time that physician is spending. You know, his work RVU used to be to spend time with the patient. Now it's to enter information. And, and that's, it's not rolled up correctly. And so I think the, the RVU model is a failed, it really truly is a failed model um, for what we do today as practices. And the only way that you can look at that is time-based activity costing to look at how much time and then equate that time and activity to what the true cost is. Well, and, and, and I couldn't agree with you more, but you, you, you went down a road that I was hoping you would which is physicians and physician compensation. So over the last several days, there's been a lot of conversations and there's a lot of varying opinions based on what data sources people are looking at, right? Whether it's the Department of Labor Statistics um, or the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, I said department, I apologize, or whether it's actually looking at their real-time data in their operational systems. For me, very rarely do I trust government data. Why? Because the motto in the government is close enough is good enough. Well, it can't be in private practice where you're not relying on taxpayer money to keep your business afloat. You're relying on your business acumen and the people that you hire to drive your business forward, to, you know, recoup the dollars for the services that you're providing to make sure that your costs aren't outpacing the remunerations that you're receiving. But one of the things that was really interesting the other day, and I'm not trying to call anybody out, but you, you did something really cool and it, it was kind of simplistic in ways, but it was really cool. And for me, the most simplistic things oftentimes are the most profound, right? And you created this line chart, right? And you had up arrows, down arrows, some arrows that were kind of stagnant, meaning things were flatlined, if you will. And <clears throat> there were a couple of comments as to where people were saying, you're completely wrong on physician compensation. Physician compensation isn't decreasing. It's actually increasing according to certain statistics. And 
I want you to kind of talk about that for a minute. No, absolutely. And I think when we, when we put that out, the goal was when I created that was really that was to create something so simple um, that people just got logic. Because we hear so many different things. What's happening with physician compensation, hospital reimburse, reimbursement. And so these, these lines were literally just linear lines with either a positive slope or a negative slope. And we assigned, you know, a topic to it. And so I assigned a negative slope to physician compensation and reimbursement over time. And, and that's just the facts. However, some people felt that, like you said, it should, it should be a positive slope. Well, you know, the issue we have with that for those of us that are in the field is for the past 10 years, we've watched the conversion factor continue to decrease. We've also watched commercial payers slowly creep towards that direction of Medicare reimbursement. So decreasing what they're paying. And yet some people still really wanted to say that the physician compensation is increased in a sea of, um, and I think you have to take, take this to make it apples to apples of where physicians, uh, not just their compensation, but what they're paying out to your point to maintain a practice, the cost of the EHRs that's going out, the cost right. of the malpractice, um, not to mention this really small detail called inflation um, that's super small, right? I mean, it, this is crazy. That makes a huge difference. What are we at? 6.8% inflation? <laughs> yeah. What are we at? 6.8% uh, inflation? Somewhere. I think it's somewhere around there. Um but to say in the sea of all those elements and variables, if you plug those into a formula, that you're going to see a positive slope for physician compensation is erroneous. It doesn't exist. Um, it, it definitely is a negative slope. I mean, we've we've watched physicians continue and continue. I mean, we had macro MIPS. This was a good one, right? So when we had macro MIPS, physicians were spending twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars to recoup five thousand. And practice administer. I mean, so their 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 compensation yeah. has definitely decreased. And it was it was interesting to to hear people try to argue because the majority of people, ninety percent, have said absolutely we agree with the slope of the line. But there's that ten percent that's dead against it. The issue I have is generally the ten percent that are against it have nothing to do with healthcare. They have no healthcare experience. Well, you're right. And 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 hold that thought for a minute. I want to go back. I, I was sure. I was slightly off on the inflation rate. According to the latest report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the annual inflation rate in May was 8.6%. It's highest level since 1981, as measured by the Consumer Price Index. Folks, in the month of May, we were 8.6% inflation, the highest in more than 40 years. And, and your difference in what I try to tell people is long, this has long been surpassed, but that slight difference in what we call the GPCI or the geographic index adjustment based on your location or the salary wage index right. for a hospital doesn't remotely come close to compensating right. for those differences. And especially when we get into talking about urban providers versus rural providers, that's the, that's a huge issue. That's right. Now, now I want to, I want to speak, again, to the fact of physician compensation decreasing. And there's two aspects. Now, I will say this. We have seen a significant shift away for physicians from the hospital setting into private practice. And it's for a lot of different reasons. One, 
They want their autonomy back. They want to practice medicine the way that they believe is best suited to them and their patient mix and not to have MBAs telling them how to practice medicine who have never spent a day in a clinical course, okay, or treating a patient. Second, <clears throat> insurance companies, United Healthcare has been notorious for this. I have multiple, multiple letters out right now to senior vice presidents of regions around the country for United Healthcare who have come out and said, we are reducing your fee schedule from this to this. You have 90 days in which to appeal it. I have one group that sent 27 emails to the email address that was listed, as well as made phone calls, and not one time did they receive a return call from anybody. Okay? No return emails. But what UHC has basically said is this is a take it or leave it. And folks, if you don't believe me, there was litigation on this very issue in 2021. And I believe it carried into 2022. Now, there may have been a settlement agreement. There may have been something that happened to make the case kind of go away. But let me tell you something. People litigated it. And they had every right to do so. But here's another example as to why physician reimbursement is going down. Again, we have something called sequestration, right? That takes money away. But we have seen Medicare, well, Congress, kick the can down the road for many years, right? Because there was supposed to be a 10-year phase-in for a reduction in the physician fee schedule for Medicare. And every year, Congress has come back and has said, we're going to give it a stay of execution. We're going to hold off till next year. Well, folks, in 2023 right now, there is a proposed 4.5% reduction to the conversion factor. Right that's now, the just, conversion factor is yeah, 34. That's, that's just the conversion factor. So Sean's going to tell you what the conversion factor is. That doesn't include RBUs. Yeah, once you include everything else, there are some projections coming out, and we've done some of these, that think for certain specialties yeah. and physicians, you're talking north of between 10 and 15% possibly with everything else applied, sequestration. I have, and, and I agree with you. I have seen those numbers. We have run some of those models ourselves, and we're seeing what we've seen is somewhere between 10 and 12%. But again, there are certain subspecialties who have just, for whatever reason, been crucified over the last five to seven years, and they're going to take an additional beating. And when you look at these stretched over a period of a decade, I mean, in some cases, we've seen north of 20% reduction. You know, I tell people all the time, the 80s Mercedes are long gone. We're lucky if our doctors could afford a 1990 Yugo. But here's the deal. A 4.5% reduction to the conversion factor in 2023 from 3461 down to 3308. And a lot of folks, if you're trying to figure out what is the conversion factor, that is the, the dollar amount that is set by Congress as to how much they're going to multiply each relative value by. Now, there's a whole uh, algebraic equation that goes into it, right? 
So you have to take the work RVU multiplied by a work geographical practice cost indice. That's the gypsy that Jordan was talking about. You add that to a uh, practice RVU multiplied by a practice gypsy. And then you take a malpractice RVU multiplied by a malpractice gypsy. You add the three of them together to get what's called a total relative value. And then you multiply that by a conversion factor. Remember, the whole point of this is that Congress needs it to be budget neutral. We used to have a budget neutrality adjuster, and that would adjust things by, like, I think it was 0.09% or some somewhere in that area. And they did away with the budget neutrality adjuster, and they said, we'll find another way. Look, people talk about, oh, well, we saw an increase to the RBUs. Well, you may have seen an increase to the RBUs, but you saw a decrease either in your gypsies or in the conversion factor. And they do that because they have to maintain budget neutrality. Yeah, Jordan, I mean, anything you want to say about that? No, I mean, that's spot on. I think you'd be careful, you know, what, what the left, what the left hand give it, the right hand will take it. Then I think that's the issue is a lot of people will look at just the RVU and we've already identified, we won't go into it. The RVU model is a blown, failed model. Um, there are much more accurate ways, but that's what we have. That's the standard. But this decrease every year of the conversion factor is, is really has been problematic. Uh, and I think, it's not getting better. We are in a gap right now. Normally, we always see almost to the day the MPFS proposed rule come out and the OPPS come out. If you notice, there's a gap right now. Um, we have not seen the OPPS come out. And a lot of people and their indicators that we have think that we're going to see this increase for the hospital. So why, as Sean said, are they beating down and crucifying the MPFS and freestanding, yet they're wanting to raise the hospital? Um, and we have payers that don't want to pay for anything in the hospital. They want it to be done at an ambulatory surgery center or a freestanding center. This sets the stage for a very problematic issue. And if you don't think it's an issue, one thing you can Google here locally, um, we have the case Blue Cross Blue Shield of Mississippi versus UMMC. They are at a three-month standstill to where they can't come to an agreement. Meaning, if you have any services done and you got Blue Cross at UMMC, our largest hospital in the state of Mississippi, you are out of network, not covered. This, to me, is completely, as Sean said, it's, it's unacceptable. It's absolutely unacceptable and because you, you can't talk out of both sides of your mouth and say we're for patient access, we're for patient care, the patient first, and then turn around and do that kind of stuff. And this all stems back to the money that we're talking about and, and how these conversion factors and things like that work. So I'm, I couldn't agree more. I want to I go back to something that we started talking about, and that's prior authorizations, because to me, I believe wholeheartedly prior authorizations are the greatest scam in healthcare because we spend hours on a phone trying to get a prior authorization for either a treatment with medications, a surgical intervention, a access to a CT scan or an MRI. And we get the prior authorization. Sometimes they get denied. Let's just say we get the authoriz we get the prior authorization, but you get the notice, right? That says 
This prior authorization is not a guarantee of reimbursement. Well, what the heck is it? So precisely that, we've wasted time that has no billable CPT code, but we've paid staff for only to get an authorization, which isn't going to be paid. I mean, it's the most mind-blowing thing ever. And as we're seeing more and more people elect out of Medicare and go to Medicare Advantage, the problem is only getting, it's being exacerbated tenfold. You know, so there are states right now that um, Texas is one of them. Texas has put into place um, something called a gold card. And basically, it's something to the effect of if you achieve 95% prior authorization on CPT codes. For those CPT codes, once you achieve that percentile, that 95%, you no longer have to get prior authorizations. That's a huge, huge benefit to medical practices, right? Oh, it's a huge benefit to medical practices. I mean, it, it, number one, it gets the patient to care faster. Um, it also decreases uh, the amount of money that's being paid for staff. It's actually optimizing the practices and the physician, their resources by not having to fight an unnecessary battle. I mean, day in and day out, we deal with people that are like, well, we only have a 29% first time, you know, denial rate for the first. I'm like, why is this, why are we even having this issue? Like literally for a lot of treatments, we follow the same pathway for every patient. It doesn't deviate. Um, and if you're within those confines of what you're talking about, Sean, why are we still having to jump through hoops? I mean, if this is standard, why does it take the legal case on the backside to go fight it or a patient died waiting for care? Why does it take that when we were going to follow the same pathway? That's the frustration. And it's and it's an algorithm, right? All these payer and insurance companies, That's right. you, you can off the same thing, same patient 10 times. And three of them are going to deny, and it's just based on the algorithm that they have. But the gold card's Absolutely. huge. Spot I think on. it's great. We don't want to see the gold card, though, end up on a post-treatment adjudication to where then you get held up on the backside because then we've got the same problem. So That's right. we really want it end-to-end, and we've been able to um, give some pretty good input in the Texas area for the gold card. And we're we're actually – we're actually starting to see Tennessee move in that direction. Now, there's, I hope there's other states, and if our listeners, our viewers, uh, if you want to share with us in your state, if you're seeing something like that, the gold card, uh, as is in the state of Texas, uh, let us know. We'd love to know what states are moving in that direction. The, the, the last thing, Jordan, that I want to talk about, um, because I know you and I both have some significant thoughts on um, private equity in healthcare. Ooh. So you, yeah, you started. You started to talk about it just a couple of minutes ago, um, and I, I told you, hang on, because we're going to get to it. But private equity. <clears throat> look, everybody believes that healthcare is a golden goose for whatever reason. I don't understand it, but well, I do because it's a trillion dollar industry. And everybody wants a piece of that pie, right? But if you, it's like I tell people all the time. If you're an attorney that's been practicing a state law for the last 10 years 
and now all of a sudden you think you're going to represent somebody in a false claims act case, guess again, it ain't going to happen. You're, you're going to be in big trouble. And so is your client. Uh, and I could say that because this is what I do for a living. Uh, I, I work with what 30 law firms across the country on FCA cases and healthcare fraud statute cases and stuff of that nature. But with private equity, venture capital, VC, mezzanine financing, whatever terms you want to use, what are you seeing as the biggest challenges and the biggest issues with physicians partnering with these individuals coming from other industries, not understanding the world of healthcare to the, the, to the degree that people who have ate it, slept it, breathed it, bled it, seeing no i mean i think it's a i think it's you know i have i have nothing against it when it's for the right reasons but we've been on this five to ten year high of it being for the wrong reasons and you know these companies as a position are looking for what we call you know portfolio diversification right so they don't need every investment to hit they need one or two out of ten to hit big and the other ones just serve as a loss. Um, the biggest example we give in healthcare and it, it'll still kind of go down uh, in history, obviously perverse reasons for uh, the Theranos and their failure, but Warren Buffett and the Haven, all these people, money, chunking money at, at a lot of things, the problem will be solved. Healthcare is absolutely different. Um, but what people had figured out was if I can throw enough money in the short term, we can make a lot of money. And but it leaves the healthcare system in shambles because it drives the cost of healthcare up. We talk about this redundant waste. Um, and health tech is one of the biggest ones. And I work in health tech. Um, it's one of the biggest ones, these these kind of smoke screen solutions for physicians and things like that that end up not delivering because all they need is the sale for a, an evaluation so they can make a quick exit. Now, on the flip side, for physicians and providers, these guys come out looking like the, the wide horse and the saving grace to help them, you know, extend uh, their runway of their practice and things like that. And then they end up and they go that route and it, and it doesn't work out for them. Um, we see this right now. You know, I was at a conference several weeks ago, um, the explosion in people opening infusion centers right now. I mean, it's an explosion. Um, outpatient infusion and private equity has rushed to it. DC has rushed to it to tell these people, hey, we will we'll fund it, we'll do it. Um, and, you know, you only have to give up and then it's a huge chunk of what you have to give up. And so I think that's the problem because it's not sustainable. The agendas behind private equity and VC have to change in healthcare to not being about the two to four year window. We've got to, if we're going to fix this problem in healthcare, you better start the agendas, better start being eight, nine, 10, 15, 20 years out. It's the only way it's going to get fixed. But up until this point, it's all been about kind of a quick turn. And to your point, I mean, just chunking money at this is it's, it's failed literally every time it's happened. Yeah, and for me, you know, look, nothing against venture capitalists, nothing against private equity. Um, you know, they're trying to make money. I get it. And they're looking for industries where they're going to get a huge ROI on their investments. But physicians need to recognize if you're going to partner with 
one of these companies or you're going to sell a portion of your organization to a private equity group. You are back in the same situation if you left the hospital that you were in with the hospital because you're going to lose some of that autonomy. You're going to have KPIs. You're going to have metrics. You're going to have to do things in line with what your investors believe is the right way to conduct your business. And if you don't want to play that way, go ahead, go ahead. No, the primary answer when you get in bed into that situation is to the shareholders first, not the patient, not to how you want to practice. It's to the shareholder. Well, it, it because and 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 now you become nothing more than an insurance company who is beholden to its shareholders. And I love physicians. I've been a physician advocate now for almost three decades. Okay, but physicians as a collective group tend to make a lot of bad business decisions. Or they put individuals, this is one of the only industries that I've ever seen in my life where people matriculate from the person who answered the phone to CEO of the practice. And unfortunately, most of them don't have the requisite skills needed to be able to hold that CEO position. I'm not saying they're not intelligent people. They are. They're intelligent people. But they had very specific capabilities, right? Look, I'm not saying somebody who answers the phone today, 10 years from now, couldn't become CEO of an organization and do a heck of a job. They could, but you got to give them the tools. You got to give them the education. You got to give them the pathway forward. Otherwise, you know, it's just, well, you know, Sean was answering phones and he does a great job and people really seem to like him. And, you know, Jordan was our senior auditor, and he's not here because he wanted a $5 an hour raise, and I couldn't afford it, so we went somewhere else. So, hey, Sean, why don't you become our senior auditor of our group now? Okay, well, what does that mean? Just look at medical records, and here's a CPT book and an ICD-10 book, and, you know, um, here's some classes that you can go to on, you know, how to code an E&M service. People think I'm joking when I say this. And I'm not. I spend so much time in courtrooms. I spend so much time in hearings. I spend so much time in peer reviews. I spend a ton of time on site at client locations. And I sit down and I talk to the practice administrator and I say, help me understand how you got to be the practice administrator. Well, I I was, you know, I was the coder. And, you know, we we collected a lot of money and we did really well. And, you know, um, our office manager left and, you know, we always like to promote from within. And the doctor thought, you know, hey, you're really good at this coding job. And I think you could do the office manager job. So many, so many times and so many people get enamored by the position or the title. And then there's people like, you know, myself, people like you, like we know what our limitations are. I will be quick to tell you, yeah, I don't have that. I can't do that. I possibly know somebody can, but a lot of people will get in those roles. And I think as an industry, we've belittled and and bastardized the the value of understanding things in context and understanding the historical, the amount of time it truly takes to become an expert. People take a weekend course now and they're an expert. 
that, and again, these are the people we end up in court with. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I've seen it. You know, um, I'll finish out with this quick little story. You know, Jordan, Eric, myself, um, Ryan Vaughn, uh, you know, our, our team of auditors at Doctors Management, you know, we were asked to engage in a case where an individual was retained by the opposing counsel. And for the same work that we were able to complete in what, like six hours at probably $10,000 for that work for our whole group, this other organization spent in excess of, I think they said 500 hours to the tune of, you know, $300,000. And when we saw the final product, it was the most egregious, worthless piece of junk I think we've ever seen. Remember that case? Oh, absolutely. And it's frustrating, right? Because they get sold on this expertise. They get sold on and, yeah. and, and they don't know. So, so many people don't know to ask a question, don't know to ask a second opinion. And that's the bloat of, of healthcare and the stuff we do of the excess expenditures that aren't necessary. Absolutely. So Jordan, in closing, can you, can you share with our uh, viewers, our listeners, what, what all you have coming down the pike from a technology standpoint? So no, absolutely. I mean, some of the things that we're working on is, is integrated coding systems. So again, not automated, but integrated, augmented to be able to check at a high level what patterns and trends are. And this is from systems that are actually billing. So not what you coded and captured in, but actually what's going out the door. So that's an arm. Uh, prior authorization, uh, people love to say, hey, this is a, a completely automated solution. Listen, guys, that doesn't exist. We, I understand EDI 278s back and forth. I understand how they work, and I understand how, the, how and why the payers don't want them to work. And just use some logic. Do you think that the payer wants an insurance company, wants automatic authorization? for? No, the answer is no, absolutely they don't. So we've looked at and we've created an ecosystem, one of our solutions that we look at in prior authorization that's able to integrate it, but bring all the data from, from health policies to price transparency to um, a policy checks and all this stuff in one place. So you're maximizing your time and not going here and there to look for everything. So that's been one. I, I briefly touched on price transparency, which Sean and I've had a focus on, but ingesting all of this data, which to Sean's point, you would think, you know, do you really want to solve healthcare's problems? And the answer is these hospitals can't upload a Excel file that's five columns. That's all they ask for. So can we really solve mind boggling? Um, and so, you know, we focus on ingesting that data, making it relational, but then partnering and using this software um, in group um, in large groups and small groups and then aligning the subject matter experts. I can't say that enough. The technology of these and we'll hit on them again, PE and VC companies that are purebred tech. And it's great. It may look good on a spreadsheet and look like it has all the bells and whistles. But when you look under the hood, there's a lot of things missing that only a subject matter expert is going to be able to catch. That's it. And so but for them, it's for Sean and I, it's really been about consistency and Eric and the rest of the guys. It's been about consistency over time and delivering. These businesses only need to deliver one time. 
They only need to sell. They don't need to deliver. They just need to sell. And there's a big difference. And I think that's that's where I come in. Sean comes in. A bunch of us collectively have gotten together to try to break that mold um, and tell people, listen, we'll even go uh, we'll even go at risk with you. The big guys aren't going to go at risk with you. We'll go at risk with you just to show you it can that's actually right. do it. Um, so that's some of the stuff we've worked on. Awesome. And I know, I, I, look, I follow you on LinkedIn, even though I get a chance to talk to you, you know, a few times a week, I still follow you on LinkedIn because I feel like what you put in writing is so much more intelligent than what I hear coming out of you on a telephone. <laughs> I like it. That's what I tell people. Yeah, just pay attention to what you're writing. You know, I love you. You know, I love you, man. And it's all, it's all in good fun because, but, but seriously, for our listeners, if you're not following Jordan Johnson on LinkedIn or on other social media outlets, you're missing out on a tremendous opportunity to learn from somebody who is a true disruptor in the industry, somebody who is a master of his craft, and somebody who is always willing and available and ready to be able to answer questions to the complex questions in a way that is digestible easy to disseminate and user-friendly. So make sure you hook up with my buddy, my good friend, Jordan Johnson, my fellow chucklehead, who I'll be seeing a little bit later on our coffee compliance and chuckleheads uh, uh, compliance after dark with uh, our, our other little buddy, Eric Rubenstein. Uh, folks, thanks so much for, again, tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with myself and my special guest, Jordan Johnson, today on The Compliance Guy. Again, thank you for making us a top 25. We're actually number six out of thousands of podcasts out there on Feedspot, which is an independent blog on uh, podcasts, uh, largest collector of information in the podcast world. We are number six, thanks to all of you. and also. Thank you so much for the thousands of nominations that the Compliance Guy podcast actually received for the People's Choice Awards. If you feel so inclined, you can go to uh, podcastawards.com, register, and you will find the Compliance Guy in two categories. First is the Andy Curry Award, and the second is in the business category. So if you're up for it, please vote. You can also follow us on Anchor, Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And until tomorrow, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. Y'all take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.